Section 7 of True Stories About Pets Edited by Jane Gray Swisshelm This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by D. Scott Warren, Seattle The True Story of a Tame Crow by Miss H. H. Stewart once upon a time there was a round-faced brown-eyed boy whom we will call tom because that was not his name he was so tender-hearted he cried when he saw the seamstress cutting up his father's coat as if he thought his father was being dismembered before he could speak quite plainly he could repeat if i ever see on bush or tree young birds at a pretty nest i must not in my play steal the birds away to grieve their mother's breast and with such pathos there were tears in his voice. I said in my haste, This is a boy without any depravity, who will grow up the champion defender of all helpless creatures. Now when this boy, without any depravity, was twelve years old, what do you think he did? He brought home from the woods nearby a cap full of unfledged crows. You will say a change had come over his spirit. I should think so. It came in the way of a strong temptation. When Tom wanted anything, he wanted it dreadfully. Somewhere Tom had read or heard that the crow was a bird of superior intelligence and could be taught to talk. The idea of training a bird to say, Molly, put the kettle on, took possession of Tom's vivid fancy. He began to ponder upon wide possibilities in the intellectual development of crows, he wandered daily to the woods with his younger brother, and together they watched a pair of crows building their nest. The boys formed their own plans and kept their own counsel. Upon a certain day in April, when the eggs had been hatched about two weeks, the old birds left the nest and sailed out of sight. I think they have gone to catch fish in Jamaica Bay, said Tom. Now is your time, said the brother, twitching his scotch cap off from his yellow curls and handing it to Tom. Tom tucked the cap under his arm and climbed the cedar tree that held the nest. He looked in. Five red throats opened almost wide enough to swallow him. As they gaped, they screamed. Tom's bright eyes grew greedy considering which he had best take. He reflects they have no feathers. One bird alone will be so cold and lonesome. Besides, it is such a curious sight. Their throats look like a bunch of red tulips. His brother must see them. Yes, he will take them all. This passed through his mind quickly. The old birds could not have been far off, for while he was transferring the last one, they attacked Tom with a fury. How he came down with any eyes left in his head is a mystery. They summoned all the crows in Queens County, and there was more calling than at a political caucus. For hours the woods resounded with screams. Naturally, you will ask how Tom silenced the reproaches of his conscience, in the same way all robbers do, whether boys, men, or nations. He raised the cry of philanthropy. He argued in this wise, It is true that you, Tom Stewart, have removed these young birds from the parental crow's keeping, but you have done it with the high motive of improving their condition. And let us not be too hard upon Tom for his specious self-vindication. Only the other day a party of statesmen went off birds nesting to Berlin, 
and lord beaconsfield the great english premier came home with the island of cyprus in his pocket a very fine chicken which he is going to take care of for its mother turkey i will do tom the justice to say that he looked tenderly at his helpless dependents and resolved himself into a whole orphan asylum for their care but he found that being an asylum for orphan birds is no sinecure those five mouths were always stretched for more and their nutriment was limited to raw flesh and raw fish carefully minced the first week all his spending money went to the butcher reluctantly he gave his neighbor little blue-eyed dora the crow of brightest promise the very next day dora's brother almost a baby dropped a marble into the gaping throat and thus ended fledgling number one numbers two and three were given to his friend harry who having theories of his own experimented with their nourishment and they died of indigestion a carpenter who came upon the place to repair a sailboat is suspected of carrying off number four but number five surnamed dick remained and is the subject of this biography having safely passed the fledgling stage he became a very miscellaneous feeder fond of meat fruit grain and shellfish i think perhaps there was nothing he ate with so royal an appetite as a raw clam he had a set of hooks at the root of his tongue with which he could raise up anything he had swallowed if upon second thoughts he concluded to make room for something else he liked better once he swallowed a whole string of currants he seemed dissatisfied thought about it hooked it out picked off and rejected one withered current and then with great gravity swallowed the string over again he helped himself to ripe pears from the tree scolding loudly if anyone else took any never ate a bunch of grapes but selected the best and ripest from all the bunch picked every reddening tomato and pepper not i think because he liked the taste but on account of his love for bright colors after his last brother was stolen by the carpenter dick became as intimate with the family as a dog he never left home which was a place of twelve acres except in the company of a flock of pigeons that lived over the stable they tolerated his attendance with an air of aversion as though he were an intruder of some low ethiopian family but dick was a great deal handsomer and more aristocratic than the whitest of the doves his head was a beautiful shape with a large brain and an eye of fine intelligence his perfect health showed in glorious blue-black plumage every feather was brighter than silk in the old burial of cock robin the crow officiated as parson there was nothing parsonic or funereal in the tastes of our dick he was a wag if pussy lay stretched asleep in the sun dick would steal up and give her tail a sudden tweak when she started up and looked about in angry surprise he would be standing off blinking with such an air of innocence even feline suspicion did not fall upon him a half-witted servant about sixteen years old entertained a superstitious fear of dick he divined it and made that girl's life a burden it was her business to gather vegetables and fruit for dinner when she began to pick peas dick would swoop down from some distant tree clutch her shaker bonnet from her head sail out of her reach then drop it and jump upon it with mad furious fun while her frantic shrieks would inform everybody in the neighborhood of the whimsical performance that was going on she was the only person afraid of him and he persecuted only her though he did not refrain from practical jokes upon his best friends 
Tom kept very intimate relations with his grandmother. He carried on most of his enterprises under her sitting-room window, because he liked to talk with her and he found it convenient to borrow certain articles she kept at hand. Once, when she made a visit to Staten Island and was gone several weeks, Tom was found sitting outside her door, looking so desolate his mother asked him what was the matter. I do wish Grandma would come home and bring her string bag, he said in the most injured manner. Grandma wore a wonderful pocket in which she carried a knife, a pair of round pointed scissors, and a pincushion that looked just like a red tomato. Tom was making a kite. As usual, he was under her window. He called, Grandma, will you let me take your red pincushion? She handed it down to him, saying, Be sure and bring it back. Remember, you have a lame grandmother who cannot run after her things. He gave his promise with utmost sincerity. No sooner had he laid it beside him than Dick rose with it in his beak, alighted on the barn, and planted it in the gutter, covering it with wet leaves. He did the same with a letter that was to be sent in haste to the post office. The magpie nature stood out strongly in Dick, and nothing could be funnier than his air of business and mystery when he thought he was hiding some stolen thing. He chose a rustic basket that crowned an old stump for his bank. Here he secreted pieces of china, bits of glass, several buttons, two or three pennies, and some large bright beads. If anyone approached the safety deposit, he came screaming to the rescue. Tom had a way of throwing himself on his face at full length in the orchard. Dick would walk over him, nip his ear and pull his hair, and never give up his investigation till Tom rose up laughing, to convince Dick that nothing was the matter. Tom's brother had a curious, troublesome idiosyncrasy. The boy was always absent at mealtime. When the family assembled at dinner, this lad was always missing. The half-witted girl would be sent ringing a bell through the grounds, like a town crier, for the delinquent. Invariably, he was found in the deep grass catching grasshoppers, which he fed to Dick sitting upon his shoulder, who received and swallowed them as coolly as if boys were created especially to serve him with grasshoppers. One peculiar characteristic of Dick was that he never showed any fondness for the ladies of the family, but was all devotion to the lords of creation. When the gentleman of the house sat reading upon the piazza, Dick would hop upon the arm of his chair, pull his paper, peck gently at his eyeglasses, croon confidentially in his ear, untie his shoes, and in a dozen ways court his attention. He never would go to bed until he had first flown to his master and received from him a caress of good night. He had perfect confidence in human beings and never showed any fear of them, not even strangers. If by chance, however, wild crows came about, he was terrified. And, what is singular, they seemed equally to fear Dick. Once, when a hen-hawk circled overhead, he flew to the gardener and clung to his neck with cries of alarm that seemed half-human. It was a custom of Tom's family on fine Sundays to walk the mile to the village church. In October dawned such a day when every condition of nature made the walk a delight. Father and mother with the children set forth. Dick was in his most sociable mood and resolved not to be left behind. Was ever before seen such an odd escort for a family going to church? This great, black, glossy bird sailed just overhead, alighting on fences, evidently considering himself as good a Christian as a white man. After some bright speculation about the probable sensation if Dick should be allowed to enter church, 
Tom was sent to take him home. A wild cherry tree grew beside the gate. It was Dick's habit to perch here when he felt lonesome, to watch for his friends. This Sunday, after his return, he mounted this outlook. Tom's grandmother saw him from her window. Suddenly, the stillness was broken by a gun. Dick was not to be seen. The spitz dog was barking furiously. The witless servant ran out and saw two vandal sportsmen disappearing down the road with guns. Doubtless they carried away the body of our dear Dick in their murderous hands. No citizen of the neighborhood would have pulled a trigger to harm him. It was a wanton deed by stragglers from the city who, I dare say, never dreamed of the heartbreak that a whole family suffered over the fate of their confiding, affectionate, fun-loving Dick. End of section 7. Recording by D. Scott Warren. Seattle.